Welcome to Cross-Border Tax Talks, where we discuss the latest trends in international taxation, from the OECD's Pillar 2 to Japan's latest corporate tax developments. I'm Doug McConey, PwC's International Tax Services Global Leader. Check out PwC's Policy on Demand news platform that provides in-depth insights and analysis on tax policy developments. Policy on Demand is now available for free at policyondemand.pwc.com. On this week's episode of Cross-Border Tax Talks, we're recording from the Hotel Lobby Policy on Demand studio at PwC's International Tax Conference in Dana Point, California, where I'm excited to be joined by Shin Yamaguchi. Shin is a Tokyo-based international tax partner where he leads PwC's inbound tax practice for Japan. Shin is a graduate of Deep Springs College, Stanford, has a law degree from Yale, and an LLM from NYU. He writes broadly on matters ranging from geopolitics, ESG, and tax policy. Shin, welcome to the podcast. It's great to finally have you on. Thanks for having me, Doug. Well, so Shin, I was there and I was in Tokyo in December of 2022. Um, it is early 2023. We spent a lot of time talking about Pillar 2. And yes. I'm really excited to, to have you on because there's been some proposed legislation. Lots happened over the past couple of a, months. A lot has happened. I and gave you the heads up, by the way. You did. You did. And uh, for that. A, lot of, uh, a lot of discussion now around the world and involvement. But before we dive into Pillar 2, mm -hmm. Um, wanted to, to get your experiences or to get your reflection on your experiences. You started your career, uh, an amazing academic background, spent 10 years um, advising multinationals here in the U.S. You spent the last six years of your career working in Japan. Mm -hmm. And how did your experiences as a U.S. advisor impact your experiences advising Japanese multinationals? Sure. Uh, I think uh, something that is uh, near and dear to our hearts as tax advisors is the role of the tax function. And you know, as, you, as you well know, Doug, in the U.S., tax is very close to business. You know, how do you uh, advise on supply chain, now ESG? Uh, transformation, business transformation, et cetera. And, and I think that in Japan, perhaps, tax function is still growing. And mm -hmm. it's in the process of transforming itself, being closer to the business side. Now, of course, we too have issues around supply chain with the geopolitical situation sure. in Japan, U.S. and China, or ESG, which Japan, Japanese companies are very much committed to. And so how can tax become more relevant and have more interactive discussions with the business as well as the fact that Pillar 2, becoming such a significant undertaking, has a higher profile within the business. Um, and how can we use this as a launching pad to reassess the global tax operations of Japanese multinationals? That's something that perhaps I can leverage my experience in the U.S. Um, as we go forward over the next couple of years. Yeah, I think one of the things that we've certainly, that I've seen as I've talked with a number of folks from outside mm -hmm. the U.S., um, even on this podcast, mm -hmm. Um, that what a huge undertaking Pillar 2 is going to be, and we're going to come back to that because I do want to get your reflections on sure. how Japanese multinationals may be positioned. And the point is interesting that the tax departments, and, and of course there's exceptions to all these generalities, but mm -hmm. that you know the U.S., oftentimes for U.S. MNCs, the tax practices just have a lot more depth, um, arguably maybe because of just the historic complexity associated with some of the U.S. Sure. roles that's mm -hmm. differentiated some of the Japanese multinationals as well as other multinationals uh, across mm -hmm. the globe. All right, so let's dive into to Pillar 2. Sure. And before we get into some of the mechanics and what we've seen from the, le the legislation, 
Um, I think it would be helpful for the listeners to understand what is the Japanese legislative process, because this really is going to dictate kind of when rules get introduced, when they get finalized, and then we'll kind of go through some of the mechanics and effective dates. But just how does the legislative process work in Japan, and where are we from a Pillar 2 perspective? Sure. So tax legislation in Japan can only be enacted through the annual tax reform. The annual tax reform is the, the proposal uh, comes out in December, and then the draft legislation comes out in February, and then the bill is passed in March. So that's the annual uh, schedule, if you will. Now you have taxpayers uh, and industry associations providing input over the summer. Ministries will take that and discuss with the governing party, and the governing party, uh, Liberal Democratic Party, ultimately comes out with the outline proposal in December. This year is slightly different. The Pillar 2 legislation, specifically the IIR, is in line with the globe rule. So there's not as much discussion, if you will, between taxpayers and uh, the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the government mm -hmm. in that regard. The government is taking what the OECD has and implementing it. And the taxpayers had other related questions around the, the model rules. But uh, it was widely expected because it's a one-shot uh, proposal that it would be the IR would be implemented in uh, the 2023 tax reform as it as it has been. So it's really only it's one bill effectively in Japan. You get one shot a year. I said correct. The, you the policymakers get one shot a year to implement these rules. That's right. And then is are, is there also how would additional guidance be incorporated? Is there enforcement orders? I think uh, or or how does that work um, with respect to pri providing potentially some additional color? You know, from a U.S. perspective, we obviously have regulations. Is there something similar or analogous exactly. in Japan? Exactly. And, and if you look at this year's legislation as well with risk with the IIR, the important information such as who are the taxpayers, how much tax will be paid, that information has to be codified. So that will be in mm -hmm. the, the law itself, but other uh, supplementary uh, information can be issued via the enforcement orders which will be com come out uh, over the following few months. And w is there any requirement for like the enforcement orders to come out with a certain amount of time? The reason I ask is because we've recently received some additional administrative guidance, mm -hmm. um, and then the OECD has also said that there will be additional administrative guidance issued throughout the rest of the 2023 calendar year. So from a Japanese perspective, particularly if there are some substantive changes, um, how would that get incorporated potentially into Japanese law? Is it possible that that could all come through an enforcement order, or we may have to wait till next year, next March? How, how does that? How does that work? That, that would, if it, it, to the extent it's substantive, we would have to wait until next December. Uh, and and interestingly, the draft legislation came out a day after the administrative guidance uh, was issued. So it's, we should expect, and, and in fact, uh, to, to the extent uh, that the administrative guidance needed to be incorporated, you know. Uh, some of it was in the uh, draft legislation as well. Okay, so, so some of that, some of the information from the administrative guidance, presumably Japanese policymakers mm -hmm. were engaging with the OECD to understand, to make presumably, sure that they were consistent. Yeah. And then uh, yeah, it will be interesting, uh, just as we can attract this process around the world, particularly the different legislative process, and as we continue to get guidance, you know, the concern that I have for taxpayers is just how different are some of these rules based on the time of enactment exactly. and certain policy exactly. decisions that need to be made. I mean, from a timing perspective, we were waiting as long as we could hmm. for the OECD guidance to come out, but generally the tax reform proposals come out in early de December. This year it came out December 16th. We were waiting uh, for some of the information, but ultimately the safe harbor guidance came out thereafter. Uh, safe temporary safe harbor uh, rules are cross-referenced in the draft legislation, so we are kind of... Um, 
working together with the OECD and incorporating as much as we can mm -hmm. in the 2023 tax reform. Anything additional will, should, should be uh, expected to come out in the 2024 tax reform. All right, so maybe before we dive into the rules, the mm -hmm. rules, how, how many Japanese kind of companies-ish are in scope? So, you know, the 750 million euro threshold, mm -hmm. um, there are a lot of multinationals in Japan. And so uh, uh, any idea just kind of approximately how many companies may be in scope for these rules? Yeah, you know, we expect the over 800 Japanese multinationals will be in scope. So quite a number, and each of them has hundreds of subsidiaries over the world, all over the world. Right. So it, it is quite a number of entities that are in scope. All right, Subject so to the safe harbor, of course. Yeah, and we'll, we can and talk about we'll later. get to the safe harbor. So tell me a little bit about the, the income inclusion rule. What came out in the, in the legislation? Sure. Um, so sort of income inclusion rule and the under-tax payment, under-tax profit rules. So the, this year is 2023 tax reform the income inclusion rule will be implemented and is very much in line with the globe rules obviously uh, and as to the QDMTT and UTPR the Japanese government has indicated that you know, we should expect the uh, QDMTT and UTPR to be Im introduced uh, but the government has said that the timing is unclear there's st it's still under consideration I think much of it is around where will other countries stand and so just kind of wait and see and at the earliest it will be introduced in the 2024 tax reform uh, effective 2025 okay. so there would be a one-year delay um, minimum and because it's not in this year because the UTPR and the QDMTT are not in this year's budget like it, it won't be in for 2024 the soonest it could potentially be in would be for 2025 correct and and, and keep in mind the QDMTT uh, you know, whether it's somewhat unlikely that a, a Japanese subsidiary would have a uh, less than 15% jurisdictional ETR, just given uh, how our tax system is, uh, so unlike the U.S., for example. Right. Well, I w I'm going to challenge that here in a few, but I wanted to set the stage. What, what There was 60 pages of legislation. There's Correct. obviously a lot more out there through the model rules, commentary, and now mm -hmm. through the administrative guidance. What you know broadly was in, what broadly was out, what are we going to see potentially from enforcement uh, orders that you had mentioned earlier? Sure. So the focus is around chapters one and two, uh, scope and, and also charging provisions, and, and then chapter five, the computation of the ETR and uh, the top-up tax. Again, who are the taxpayers, how much tax needs to be paid, that was important, so that was in the, in the legislation. As to uh, chapters three and, and four around global income or loss, or uh, adjusted covered, covered tax. taxes, yeah. that will be issued in the enforcement orders. Okay. And what about like, the, there's a whole number of other chapters too, like transition rules is something that has been the focus of a number of taxpayers for transactions that occurred after these rules were initially proposed in November of 2021. Mm -hmm. Will those other sections be Perhaps incorporated as well? Enforcement orders, yeah, I think. Okay. Yeah. All right. Um, and then you had mentioned the the safe harbors, and so exactly. the safe harbors were in, were, were those actually included in the legislation? Legislation is as the temporary safe harbors will be in, uh, and this will be quite important as well. Uh, and we can talk about that later in terms of how uh, the extent to which safe harbors might apply is, is critical, given that uh, Japanese tax functions are are relatively uh, uh, thin in terms of resources. But again, 
number of entities uh, that we may need to consider is quite quite significant. Yeah, and, and one can imagine, given you know, for the reasons that you had already articulated, mm -hmm. and we'll we'll dive into that that a number of the Japanese multinationals, those 800 Insco companies, will want to take advantage of the transitional safe harbors. But I Correct. will I will remind listeners that it is a transitional safe harbor. Understood. So the the work is still there. Uh, well, we'll see if we end up getting permanent safe harbors, but we'll certainly see. So what about effective dates? Because I think Japan maybe threw the globe a little bit of a curveball that we don't have an effective date of January 1st. It's uh, April 1st, 20, or tax years beginning after April, 20, April 1st, 2024? That's correct, and that's an important point, Doug. So the IIR, Japan IIR, will apply for fiscal years on or beginning April 1st, 2024. And, and this is designed to align with the fiscal years of the vast majority of Japanese multinationals, who also start in April 1. At the same time, we do have a handful of calendar year taxpayers to which the Japan IR will only apply in 2025. And as you might expect, they have to deal with questions around, well, will the IAR or their foreign subsidiaries apply, or perhaps UTPR to the extent that it's introduced in 2024 and certain other jurisdictions could apply. So they have a kind of separate set of questions. But by and large, the April 1st is, is designed to align with um, Interesting. So, so for, you know, for example, U.S. multinationals or non-Japanese mm -hmm. parented groups that maybe have acquired a Japanese parented group and have subsidiaries underneath Japan, mm -hmm. I think that may be the more common fact pattern where you would see a January 1st mm -hmm. deadline. And so they'll get a eight-month reprieve on the IAR um, because they have the, the, the Japan calendar year. That's correct. Because they have the, the, correct. Cal the calendar year. Yeah. All right, now you had mentioned the, the qualified domestic minimum top-up tax, yes. and that was not included in the legislation. Correct. Potentially, I assume both the QDMTT and the UTPR would would have similar effective dates, so April 2025 as opposed to January 1st. Is that kind of no, typically that's, that's right. how? That would be the expectation. And so, you know, the, the QDMTT, one of the things that, that we've seen that I think has been a surprise to a number of advisors mm -hmm. is that despite the fact, or, or just generally under the Pillar 2 rules, one of the things that's been a surprise is that jurisdictions that have an effective rate above 15%, so in the U.S. is a classic example of a 21%, and you add the state rate, that as a result of domestic incentives, sure. whether that's you know, the R&D credit mm -hmm. or FDII yep. or frankly other book tax differences, mm -hmm. that it's pushing multinationals Pillar 2 calculations mm -hmm. below the 15%. Yes. And so we mentioned the, the QDMTT in Japan. Um, how relevant is that for Japanese multinationals? Are there incentives kind of similar to what we're seeing in the U.S.? I probably should have also mentioned some of the incentives in the Inflation Reduction Act and some of the green energy credits, but sure. are there similar type of incentives in Japan um, that could push Japanese multinationals below the 15% that could put them in a QDMTT position? Sure, so we do have an, uh, two things. One is as you've mentioned, the R&D credit in the U.S., we, I, I've seen Japanese multinationals who take R&D credits in the U.S., and so they may be subject to uh, the Japan IIR. And it's non-refundable? Correct. And, okay. and, 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 well, in, 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 as the U.S. side, Japan side, same thing, okay. non, non, uh, similar to R&D credit in the U.S., non-refundable. Um, but it's, uh, the, 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 the magnitude of, of the credit is such that we should not see the, uh, the rate uh, go below 15%. Okay, yeah. but obviously you gotta do the modeling, but it just sounds like- You the modeling, and there are other incentives, so I mean, theoretically, okay. it's, it's not impossible. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Um, and so 
we also we received some guidance in December that you're well aware of with respect to the Globe Information Return. Sure. And um, I think you know one of my takeaways from the Globe Information Return. I did a podcast with with mm -hmm. Michael Leckie yes, on this where we where we reviewed you know it was more kind of a list of data points than really kind of the tax return that mm -hmm. I think many taxpayers and advisors were hoping for. Do you have any thoughts on how what Japan is thinking about with respect to? The, the forms and the compliance and how that fits in with the Globe Information Return? Sure, um, we actually worked with uh, taxpayers on an OECD uh, public comment to the OECD for the Global Information Return, so I'm quite familiar with some of the concerns that the taxpayers have. Yeah, there was a lot uh, well, of comments. Yeah, so let's <laughs> it was amazing, it was great how advisors, taxpayers, I think there was something like 90 comments on the Global Information Exactly, on the OECD homepage yeah. website. Uh, I, these concerns are real, and, and so uh, they were raised. I mean, there's a couple, there's a number that were raised. I mean, one is, you know, should the returns be filed in the local country or can we file all the returns to the uh, UPE jurisdiction. Um, others included, and this is something that has been a consistent concern uh, uh, over the past year or two, is the concern around the information that's submitted and can that be, per the information exchange between jurisdictions, be used for purposes other than Pillar 2, such as perhaps uh, tax audits. That is another concern that Japanese companies have. Um, and also just the uh, the uh, unification or if you will uh, the simplification of forms in, in terms of can we use a CBC can we incorporate the CBCR into the global information return etc we have so many forms mm -hmm. that is there any way to kind of align those it's another uh, kind of a compliance driven uh, concern that that Japanese taxpayers had so really we no information at this point from mm -hmm. the Japanese government or policymakers but you and and Japanese taxpayers are still mm -hmm. engaging with the OECD Correct. I guess they'll kind of follow the OECD's lead if they even provide you know significant guidance on what those forms should look like to be continued to be continued and and the point on information sharing mm -hmm. and how various taxing authorities could potentially view mm -hmm. is a real concern and yes. you know I think what what some policymakers have said well we already have country-by-country country reporting that provides insight that does not create anywhere near the level of detail. Correct. Um, and, yeah. and frankly, you know, even beyond the ability for, tax, for taxing authorities, just mm -hmm. the information uh, that, that many taxpayers have that would be included within there, you know, whether that gives away certain kind of trade secrets or it, sure. it's a real concern for taxpayers. Yeah. So let's move now kind of below Japan. So as we think about the Japanese IR, mm -hmm and how Japan may tax under Pillar 2 constituent entities mm -hmm. or non-Japanese foreign subsidiaries below Japan. Before we dive into that, wanted to just get a refresher here, because I've talked to you many times over the years on the Japan CFC rules. Sure. Can you provide a, a brief overview of how the Japan CFC's rules work? Because you have a pretty stringent CFC regime, frankly, you know, arguably more analogous to the U.S. Subpart F regime than, mm -hmm. uh, than, than and guilty regime than, than other countries that I've worked with. Yeah, I mean, Japan's CFC regime is quite robust, and, and so this is the interplay between the CFC regime and Pillar 2 is, is quite critical, and we can discuss that later. But, but first, the Japan's CFC regime, it takes an entity-based approach. So, so unlike perhaps Subpart F, where you're looking at particular types of income, we look at the entity itself. Okay. And so is the CFC... Um, does it does it uh, does it satisfy certain tests? We look at 
uh, ETR, effective tax rates, and also uh, economic ac activities. And there are different thresholds, like are you under or above 20%, are you under 30%, et cetera, and then do you have economic activity? And for example, if your uh, ETR is less than 20%, and you lack economic activity, uh, then the pickup is the full income entity okay. base. So that's significant when you think about uh, it's, it's not just passive income, but, but full income. In other instances, it might be passive income. So it, depending on which bucket you end up in, um, you could be at full or passive, but yeah. And how does, you, you, you mentioned effective tax rate. How is that computed? Is that yeah, it's on tax, tax Japanese taxable, taxable income ta For Japanese tax purposes, and this comes up uh, just a quick digression, Doug, but uh, for example, in post-merger integration where for local tax purposes it may be tax-free, but for Japanese tax purposes it would be a taxable transaction. So when that happens, you have uh, limited or no local tax, but it's a taxable transaction. So for Japanese tax purposes, the ETR ends up being low, and so therefore there could be a full income pickup. And Got so, it. So there, there's that tension around um, we have to consider for Japanese tax purposes, you know, whether it be you know, for local tax purposes, if you're using a participation exemption or some type of tax-free reorganization. And the U.S., for that example. For Japan right. doesn't respect, let's say, like a triangular merger or something like that, then that would end up being a taxable transaction for us. So th that, that, that is quite important, and we have many discussions with uh, uh, our counterparts uh, all over the world on this point. So you really have to layer in sort of the view of the Japanese tax rules and system correct, to correct. the to the CFC. Yes, and so, but yes. what also that I think tells me, Shin, is that the tax base from a pillar two perspective, based on book income with all the adjustments, could be significantly different than the how the CFC regime works. Yeah, so there's a, another set of calculations that will need to be done. Now, certain tax taxpayers said, can we somehow merge the two? And, and it, it, it's not, technically may, not, may or may not be possible, but setting that aside, I just want to make one important point. The CFC rules apply to all companies, whereas Pillar 2 applies to only in-scope companies. So as a fundamental matter, we can't quite merge the two rules because you, can't, you can't drag the CFC uh, regime into Pillar 2. Right. So For there, those there less than 750 million exactly, euro exactly. top line. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Makes sense. Now what about... Um, and I'm going to nerd out here a little bit from a U.S. tax perspective, but just kind of comparing the sure. U.S. CFC regime and mm -hmm. the Japan CFC regime. Mm -hmm. What about foreign tax credits? I assume there's a foreign tax credit regime that works. And Correct. How does that operate? Yeah, you, you get, get kind of full you credits. You get credit for that. Yep. You yep. get credit yeah. for the foreign taxes that you paid to reduce yeah. you reduce your U.S. tax yeah, liability. Yep. 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 And uh, I, I assume that, that Japan does not have any of the of crazy expense apportionment rules that we have that require certain expenses that are set at the parent company Correct. to be allocated. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, leave, I'll, leave, I'll leave that up to you guys. I'll leave yeah. up to the U.S. Uh, the US <laughs> folks. Through, yeah, yep. There's a lot of history there, but uh -huh. uh, um, so that doesn't exist in Japan. Yeah. Okay, so so I think that is it's going to be an interesting kind of layover mm. for you know low-tax entities or for, for Japanese constituent entities that are operating low-tax jurisdictions like right. Ireland, for example, Hungary, just any really of the, sure. the countries that maybe below 15 percent. Mm -hmm. It sounds like the Japan CFC net may be even broader because it's a 20 and 30 percent effective tax rate threshold, but given those base differences, you're obviously going to need to do the modeling. 
Now, what about to the extent that jurisdictions start to implement QDMTTs around the world? Sure. Um, any thoughts about whether that may be creditable um, from a Japanese perspective, and how may that fit in if, if we do start seeing you know jurisdictions implement a QDMTT starting in 2024? Sure. So uh, I, I think that you know prior to the administrative guidance. Uh, Japanese companies thought, well, we'll pick up the CFC income at the Japan parent, then be taxed uh, in Japan, then push down the CFC tax and, and, and take that as a credit against QDMTT. But now, per the administrative guidance, we understand that QDMTT takes precedence over CFC taxes. Right. So I think what we're going to see is, regardless of QDMTT, there's going to be, if, if, the, if the Japanese CFC rules apply, there's going to be a CFC income pickup. So I think, similar to U.S. and guilty, perhaps to the extent it will be applicable in the future, uh, the question will be, will QDMTT be creditable mm -hmm. uh, in Japan, or otherwise there could be a uh, double taxation issue. Uh, if, if, assuming that the QDMTT is in a similar tax rate to the IIR, then, then I think there's a reasonable basis to view that as, as, as creditable, I mean, to be, to be further discussed uh, in Japan. But, sure. Um, yeah, it's interesting. So the Japan multinationals um, have the same concern and issues because of the robust CFC regime, Correct. similar to the U.S., that because the QDMTT takes precedence and that those CFC taxes are not credible, there is a, a significant risk of, of double tax. And then it'll be interesting to see how the QDMTT, once that's it's assessed, how that then fits within the, the CFC regimes of the parent company. Yeah, that's going to be critical um, right, very per, much per the so. administrative guidance. Now, what, what about if the, the Japanese parent company is in a loss, like if there's a domestic loss for mm -hmm. Japanese purposes, mm -hmm. but there is still CFC income? Sure. How does that work, and what are some of the potential issues from a Pillar 2 perspective? Sure. That's an area that we've been struggling with. Uh, if the Japan parent has a loss and, and the, uh, has a CFC income pickup, then the CFC income will be offset by the, the NOL. So essentially in that case, uh, there will not be any Japan cash tax that arises. So therefore, no cash tax to push down right. to the CFCs. Now, I guess in the case of the QDMT post-administrative guidance, it's not as critical since the QDMTT will already be applied to the local jurisdiction. But still, in the case that the, if Japan IR comes into effect in 2024, and perhaps certain jurisdictions don't implement QDMTT until 2025 or onwards, then you still have a question of, uh, in that instance, you would, the Japan IR could potentially pick right. up uh, CFC income that it otherwise is already using to offset NOLs, so that could in some ways be viewed as a double taxation. I mean, the complexity is uh, mind-numbing. Uh, ten tension and here. And absolutely, and I think the challenge that taxpayers are going to have is, you know, I, I think that you know, there's kind of the conventional wisdom mm -hmm. is that most jurisdictions are going that are that are implementing the Pillar Two rules will implement the QDMTT. Sure, sure. But there's going to be this timing issue. Mm -hmm. Right, as far as what jurisdictions actually implement the QDMTT, right. mm -hmm. when do they do it, yes. and kind of layering this on, and then now we've got you know Japan with the April, and just just has different jurisdictions in Korea, which has said you know UTPR and IR one one twenty four, and then how this layers in with respect to foreign tax credits, particularly we have CFC regimes, will be very challenging for taxpayers just from a 
calculation, just a pure calculation perspective. And, and Japanese taxpayers have raised this issue with the OECD with, with no guidance at the moment, but, but again, there will be, again to your point, there will be certain taxpayers in certain situations that happen to have a loss in 2024, et cetera, that will have the impact. So there could be somewhat skewed or, I mean, it's right. dis disparate, so it, it may not warrant a wholesale uh, address uh, from a legal perspective. So you, we, 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 are, we are speaking with uh, certain taxpayers that are in those types of situations. For sure. So since we've kind of moved to complexity, let's, let's maybe move on to what, what I've been referring to operational readiness. So, sure. you know, I've been talking to, to taxpayers uh, around the globe mm -hmm. and the, the big, you know, a number of challenges with respect to Pillar 2. Mm -hmm. And you know, one of the, the big challenges, just operational readiness, are the right stakeholders involved to be able to set up this whole new set of books, Sure. right? And there's uh, tax accounting issues and then accounting yes. accounting issues. Yes. There's systems issues. And, you know, we've done some analysis. We think about 60% of the information that, that, that you need mm. can be found in ERP systems. The other can be found in a myriad of different locations, some of which may not exist, depending on how intercompany transactions are accounted for. Um, and then, of course, in addition to the operational readiness, there's the data readiness. But you had mentioned earlier in the podcast that, you know, frankly, uh, Japan multinationals tax departments may be smaller, generally speaking, or mm. smaller than what you've seen as, as a U.S. advisor and in the U.S. Mm. So how are you seeing Japanese multinationals start to get ready for this? And I assume that, you know, that now that we're kind of in early 2023 here, that there's starting to be a, a, a much bigger focus on Pillar 2. For sure. And, and, and as I mentioned earlier, it was widely expected that the IIR would be introduced as part of the 2023 tax reform. So beginning in the fall, Japanese multinationals have begun to already gather the data and of course with the, uh, the the tax reform proposals and draft legislation it is certainly picking up and, and based on the work that we've been doing with uh, Japanese uh, companies across the board uh, we're, we're in the same situation uh, that uh, US European Asian uh, multinationals are in terms of data gathering the the, the, the difficulty the challenges of, 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 of locating reliable data from readily uh, available sources for sure and then you know you have issues around you know financial statements you know is it deferred for example reliable etc um, but also uh, I think that in, in the case of Japan and we're all, of course we're de dealing with different accounting systems, consolidation, et cetera, and all that. Um, but in the case of Japanese uh, companies also with respect to the tax function, it generally operate uh, relatively autonomously, um, the mm -hmm. foreign subsidiaries. Now, we do have information gathering processes in place for CBCR or a Japanese CFC. Sure. So, so there are channels of communication uh, around data uh, already in place. But again, going back to something you mentioned earlier, pillar two is, is the whole nother level. Uh, and the other point is that Japanese companies have been uh, quite acquisitive recently. And, and so the tax functions are, have not perhaps been integrated. And so you're, you're, you're again, even within tax, sure. you're communicating with various stakeholders in the company. Not to mention that, as, 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 uh, as you all know, um, when we talk to the tax guy, it's usually an accounting question, et cetera. So we, we have all that as well. So I, I think that going, going back to the tax function, really going to be a question of how can we implement a framework 
to, to how do we assess the data and, and we need to work, technology will, will be critical, mm -hmm. of course, but, but, but the, the, the interaction, the collaboration between uh, companies and their advisors will, will be in incredibly critical as given the, given the enormity of, of, of the task and, and for example, how do you apply safe harbor uh, exclusions, et cetera. Systematically, right. there's just so many that, in a way, that think about how, how how do you want to approach this directionally, then go into the data and and, and then make decisions. So, lots of lots of interaction in a way, a quality, qualitative and quantitatively that perhaps we've not seen in the past. Yeah, I think that is a, a common message that I'm that, that, that I'm hearing. And mm -hmm. you know, one of the examples that you gave was a Japanese company recently did an acquisition. Sure. You know, whether the tax functions are integrated. Well, mm -hmm. there's all, oftentimes the systems haven't been integrated yet either. Exactly. And so it's not uncommon for multinationals to have varying ERP systems, even though all yes. the information doesn't need to be there. And so that really Correct. seems to be a, a common theme mm -hmm. amongst Japanese multinationals, U.S. Mm -hmm. multinationals, and other Japanese multinationals. So. Um, I think that the, the messages for Japanese multinationals is those anybody operating in Japan or mm. if you have Japan subsidiaries, regardless of where the parent company is, is that the time is to start. April 2024 may sound like a ways away. Um, maybe for calendar year taxpayers, they've got a little extra time, but obviously other jurisdictions are already going to be implementing effective one one twenty four. Correct. Yeah, we're, so it's important to start well to get underway. important to start to get that infrastructure put in place. And the technology point that you mentioned is interesting because it seems to be that there there is a trend now where people understand the enormous complexity associated with these calculations, trying to figure out a way how to get out of a spreadsheet environment where the enormous complexity that we discussed with respect to the ordering rules and the push down of taxes yes. will, will make operating in a spreadsheet environment very challenging. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how Japanese multinationals as well as other multinationals look to technology to help def uh, inform both the calculation mm -hmm. as well as the data process. So maybe here, just kind of at the end, shifting away from Pillar 2, as hard as that is for me, as much as you know I like to drone on about Pillar 2, maybe talk a little bit about the Japanese deal market and maybe what are you seeing for both like a Japanese inbound as well as a Japanese outbound? Any sure. trends here in 2023 that as you kind of look in your crystal ball, what are you seeing from a Japanese deal perspective? Sure, no, I mean, uh, the deal market is, is robust. Uh, uh, first of all, from the outbound perspective, Japanese companies need to expand uh, overseas, and not only to grow, but to transform their business. And we've seen that over the past couple of years. Now, during COVID, uh, there was some temperament because uh, companies couldn't go overseas for due diligence, et cetera. And, and then uh, we have the weekend, which has um, had um, his challenges as well. But, sure. but again, for example, if you look at the U.S., stable deal environment, uh, the IP technology that you know can, we can only get here in the Japan, so uh, in the U.S. Sorry. So, so when I talk to senior management, when I talk to others, uh, there is sustained and strong interest in in continuing to invest in in, in the U.S. Not to mention, Doug, uh, that Japan is number one in foreign direct investment into the U.S. Right. So for the past couple of years, so right. that, that's continued. Uh, you know, we th there there are again currency fluctuations that we have to deal with sure. um, that that do uh, impact the market. But when you talk to the to to to, uh, to management, it's it's they're saying that they, they need to act, and, and that hasn't changed. And what about from a Japanese inbound perspective? Inbound perspective, interestingly, so you have the the large Japanese conglomerates, and again, when you look at the past couple of years, they have been trending towards selling off their non-core businesses, mm -hmm. so in various industries, and, and and in many cases, these are being sold to foreign 
buyers, for example, private equity funds. And, and, and again, now in this case, you have the weak yen, you have low borrowing costs in Japan, so, uh, so there is quite a bit of, of, of interest in uh, making acquisitions uh, inbound into Japan. Yeah, it's an interesting point because the interest rate environment in Japan is significantly different than frankly, what we're seeing in the U.S. and Europe and other mm. parts of the world. That's right. No, it remains to be it remains uh, a rather a, a matter of national concern, but uh, it, it is quite low, and, and so borrowing costs continue to be uh, favorable. So maybe the last question then is kind of shifting gears again sure. to. Um, I like to ask the, the non-U.S. folks that come on trends and tax controversy. Because sure. I think one of the things that we're seeing, particularly in a post-COVID world, um, that you know a lot more interest and scrutiny from taxing authorities on taxpayers. Is that consistent in Japan or any trends that you're seeing from a controversy perspective? Sure, I, I would say so. When, uh, as COVID set in, we had uh, fewer numbers of audits, naturally. Uh, but, but again, the revenue was relatively stable, and, and this it owes in part to a more targeted approach that the tax authority are taking. They have a little bit more time to review the CBCR, uh, additional information, and then they will take a targeted approach in, in, in looking at different industries or different issues that may be of particular concern to them. Also, because of COVID and now that we live in a digital world, for example, we've seen cases where uh, VPs of tax have been asked to join uh, tax audit meetings with the authorities uh, online. And that didn't happen before. And, and, and so from the tax authority perspective, they just want to understand the bigger picture. So it, it's, it's not you know, with particular intentions in mind, but, but again, it enables the, the authorities and as well as taxpayers to have a more candid discussion around the, the big picture of business uh, and, and what, what, uh, what, what led up to the, to the tax controversy. So something to, to keep in mind going forward for our uh, multinationals. As well. All right, well, Shin, an interesting window into the Japan Pillar 2 rules and the overall international tax environment. Thank you very much for coming on the cross-border tax talks. Yeah, thanks for I having me, I did want to also tell you how much I enjoyed my, my trip to Japan and the partners and the team there were a pleasure to work with, and we were able to film a number of, of episodes yes, um, from a Japanese exactly. perspective, so it's great to have you on the Cross-Border Tax Talks. Thanks so much, Doug. Really appreciate it. So thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Cross-Border Tax Talks. Thank you, Shin Yamaguchi, PwC's international tax partner and leader of PwC's Japan inbound tax practice. I'm Doug McConey, PwC's international tax services global leader. Stay tuned in two weeks for another exciting edition of the Cross-Border Tax Talks podcast. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com slash structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.